0: Um, I'm going to talk today about um, a, uh, a bunch of different ways of looking at fracture behavior at low effective stresses. Um, and I'll be moving through uh, uh, from ultrasonic frequencies to seismic frequencies and, and talk about some uh, interesting, non traditional ways to look at the mechanical behavior of, of fractures. Um, so I, I give this talk or, or similar talks. Um, to a bunch of different crowds, and and, and everyone sort of has different background. Um, so I'm going to talk just a little bit of, sort of about why we're interested in fractures, but I, I guess for this audience, uh, I, I can probably brush right by that because I don't think I, I have to convince anyone that, that that fractures are an important thing to pay attention to. Talk about some ultrasonic tests, some low-frequency tests, and then uh, a, a, some, some interesting experiments uh, studying the nonlinear properties of fractures that we've started to do at the lab. Uh, so why fractures? Uh, because they, they happen to be sort of at the center of a bunch of really important processes that we're interested uh, in the subsurface. And those are both natural processes faulting um, seismic and a seismic deformation and engineering projects, uh, underground uh, storage of carbon and hydrogen and and energy for other things. and 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 uh, conventional and unconventional uh, hydrocarbon reservoirs. The, the the thing they all have in common is that they have fractures. And these fractures are places where there are fluids and uh, places where heat transfer takes place. So it's, it's an area where you have coupled chemical, mechanical, thermal, hydraulic processes that are all taking place at the same time. And so uh, understanding the way that fractures behave is, is really important. Um, Understanding uh, the stress state of the crust is important because uh, that can uh, inform our understanding of uh, both uh, seismic hazards and the evolution of seismic hazards as we perturb stress through various engineering efforts, and also because the stress in the Earth uh, also controls... uh, the hydraulic properties of the fractures in the subsurface. Here are, uh, uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar, some some more diagrams where uh, you can see it's a way of, of plotting stresses in the earth. And you can see that in and fractures fr- that, starting to get some echo, uh, in fractures that are uh, close to stress, you uh, close to critical stress, you tend to have more conductive pathways. And so understanding the a way that conductivity of fracture networks and stress interacts in geothermal settings, in geological storage settings, is of the utmost importance. But we can't just drill wells everywhere to measure them, so we're interested in finding ways that we can use geophysics to remotely monitor them. And that's what what these sort of studies are after, looking at ways that we can correlate geophysics, we can measure remotely with uh, fracture properties and uh, other things about fracture state, such as, Uh, fluids, potentially chemical reactions taking place, uh, and and the state of stress. Uh, So traditionally, the way that we look at geophysical uh, signatures of fluids in the subsurface are through um, increases in pore pressure and changes in fluid physical characteristics. Uh, Now that can be uh changes in viscosity density compressibility or you can have some chemical changes that take place uh physical changes that uh actually change the structure of the rock like uh, dissolution or some sort of induced plasticity Uh, these things then change the elastic characteristics of the rock uh, the density the attenuation that's taking place and we use uh tools such as uh seismic imaging, electrical uh, and magnetic imaging, to try to uh, image the way that our engineering efforts or natural processes are, are changing the state of the subsurface. So uh, uh, the data that I'm going to be presenting today is mostly from a uh, sample that's from a well that was part of the, um, Big Sky Carbon Sequestration Partnership, which was a pilot project in Montana looking at an old gas field uh, in the Kievan Dome, part of the Sweetgrass Arch in northern Montana. And the reason it was an interesting place for a geological carbon sequestration pilot project is because there was a natural CO2 cap uh, in the Kievan Dome. And so there was a sort of demonstration that this was a geological structure that could maintain integrity and have co2 that can stay there for geologically meaningful time scales Um, there were a number of reasons that the pilot project didn't really uh, end up taking off but the project yielded a a bunch of really interesting science uh part of which is is what we have right here this is just a a a general uh cross-section of what the pilot site was supposed to look like, where you had a bunch of producing wells, a bunch of injection and monitoring wells, uh, where we would produce the CO2 that was in the, the natural uh, formation, reinject inject it in a deeper location, in, and then monitor it using various techniques. Uh, and The reservoir that was uh, the CO2 sits in is, is a non-traditional reservoir rock. It's a fractured dola stone. And uh, that is uh, interesting for a couple reasons. One is that it's made out of carbonate minerals, which are known to have complicated physical and chemical interactions with CO2 and other fluids. And also it's a low porosity fractured reservoir. And a lot of the things that we know about rock physics are based on uh, higher porosity uh, sandstone type reservoirs. And so uh, our, our old tools um, sometimes need to be sort of modified. So we actually got some core from from one of these wells. The Danielson well was um, one of the monitoring wells, I believe, uh, and found a, a location in the core where there was a natural fracture and uh, drilled a couple through going cores. Uh, one 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 and a half inch core, which we used for the ultrasonic measurement and a bunch of smaller cores, yeah. which we used for, for further characterization, characterization, which I'll, I'll talk about later. So uh, just to, to give you a sense, this is what the natural fracture looked like. It's a rough fracture. It has, um, uh, RMS roughness of, of 240 microns. It, the general magnitude of the fracture aperture is tens to hundreds of microns. Um, and it, uh, is a, you know, a, a very typical looking rough fracture. And so the goal of our study was to look at both the fluid substitution effects between uh, a nominally dry sample, sample with air in the pore space, a sample saturated with a a light brine, and a sample saturated with liquid CO2, and look at the effects of both fluid substitution and the effects of changes in effective pressure. And this is generally what the experiments, uh, what the data looked like. We used some ultrasonic transducers in transmission mode, so we pinged a little ultrasonic shot from one side of the sample traveling uh, across that through going tensile fracture and then measured it on the other side of the sample uh, as a function of pressure and we went from uh, almost zero up to about 20 mpa with a a constant pore pressure of 10 mpa and we reported both p and two orthogonal s waves Uh, and by taking a look at this data Uh, we can calculate both changes in the uh, acoustic velocity in the sample and uh, using some some more sophisticated data analysis. We can also uh, attempt to to quantify changes in attenuation, and this is what the results look like. So here is uh, effective stress on the X axis versus uh, P wave velocity or, or shear wave velocity and. The. Samples, uh, the data points in black are a uh, parallel whole core. So this was the same uh taken from a section without any fractures. Uh, and then the other three, the blue, the red, and the green are the data that are from our fractured sample. The green being the nominally dry sample saturated with air, the red being the sample saturated with liquid CO2, and the blue being sample saturated with brine. And in the shear wave plot, uh, you can see that we have uh, the two polarizations of the S wave plotted as circles and triangles, and the average of the two plotted as crosses. So uh, a few things that you can see is that there's an obvious uh, uh, effective stress dependence to both the, the P and the S wave velocities. Uh, If you take a look at the P wave velocities above about 5 MPA effective stress, you can see there's sort of a a quasi-linear increase in the velocity. But below that, at low effective stresses, there is a a non-linear dependence on the effective stress. And that's something that I'm going to talk a little bit more about later on in in the talk. But it's something to to pay attention to. Uh, The shear waves, you see the kind of same thing. Uh, Particularly in the intact sample, you get this uh, quasi-linear portion above about 5 MPA effective stress. Uh, For the fractured sample, the nonlinear behavior actually continues on to to more elevated stresses. Uh, That's something uh, that maybe we'll talk about as well. Uh, Just as a quick comparison, sanity check to the well logs that were made when the Danielson well was being drilled and our velocities are approximately comparable. The VS uh, measured from this sample is a little bit less than that measured from the sonic logs, but that's to be expected because we specifically picked a sample with a large throughgoing fracture. Let's take a look at uh, attenuation, which is um, another uh, interesting thing to look—a potential seismic target for uh, a way to image these changes. And you can see that in uh, in a lot of ways, it qualitatively looks like the velocity curves. We have effective stress uh, QP and effective stress versus QS. Same thing with the two polarizations and the average of the two that are plotted here. And you generally see that the same behavior. We have one sort of quasi-linear behavior that's at elevated effective stress, and and more non-linear behavior at uh, at lower effective stresses. And uh, you can see pretty quickly that the you can there's large differences in the qp between the different saturating fluids. The brine having the highest qs, and the CO2 and air having Lower cues. Uh, that same thing happens with the shear cues, but it's a little bit less pronounced, um, which is perhaps uh, to be expected. At the the cue that we're measuring here is an effective cue, so it's it's both an intrinsic cue. Uh, and a scattering cue at the frequency at ultrasonic frequencies. The structure of the sample is about the same as the wavelength of the, the passing radiation, and so you get a lot of scattering, particularly at a big discontinuity. And so the, the bulk of the attenuation that we're seeing is related to, to scattering. Uh, so you may expect that you wouldn't see large differences in shear cue because there you don't have... Uh, Changes in shear impedance at the at the interface, but but if we take a closer look, actually there 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 is something there, and I'll talk about that later as well. Uh, so because we have the data from both the whole cores and the fractured cores, uh, if we assume that the matrix of the fractured core is behaving like the whole core, we can remove the stress dependence from the fract uh, from the entire core from the fractured core and look at just the changes that are taking place within the fracture and and that removes a lot of the sort of. Uh, poroelastic effects that are taking place in in the porous matrix and we can just hone in on what's taking place in in the fracture. And uh, so here I have uh, plotted fracture normal stiffness and fracture shear stiffness. Um, versus effective stress. Uh, for the fractured sample for, for all the penetrating fluids. And as you can see, there aren't really large changes in the normal stiffness of the fracture a, as a function of these uh, different, uh, the different saturating fluids. And what that translates to is the fact that you won't see large differences in the reflectivity of that feature in a seismic survey. Uh, if you take a look at the shear stiffness, there are actually l- somewhat larger changes between the different saturating fluids. Uh, and that's actually a really interesting effect. It's unclear what the mechanism for this difference would be. Uh, it's been documented that the interaction of uh, CO2 and carbonate minerals yields to some sort of non traditional changes in the stiffness of that interface uh usually in uh rock physics uh one of the assumptions that's commonly made for fluid substitution is that fluids have no change don't affect the shear modulus of a material Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case uh with carbonate minerals and this is uh yet another example where there's there's something that seems to be happening um the uh attenuation tells a slightly different story. The uh, compressional attenuation within the fracture uh, does an okay job at delineating between the brine filled sample and the CO2 or the air filled samples, and that is likely a result of the change in. There's a larger impedance contrast in the wave propagating through The CO2 or the air saturated sample than in the brine saturated sample. And so you get more scattering. Uh, However, as I was mentioning earlier, that shouldn't be the case with shear energy because the shear waves aren't propagating through the fluid filled fracture. So changes in the shear attenuation, even if we're just talking about scattering attenuation, are sensitive to the shear mechanics. Of the contacts, and so something the the fact that we get different results in the attenuation versus uh, effective stress here, um, and the attenuation versus the saturating fluid suggests that something there's some interaction between the fluids and the solids at the contacts that's leading to a change in the way that uh, shear energy is coupling across the interface, which. Um, maybe isn't too surprising because this has been documented. It's been documented that there are changes in the shear modulus of carbonates as a function of fluid chemistry. So it maybe isn't surprising uh, that there would also be a change in attenuation there. Uh, but to my knowledge, um, that's not something that's been documented before. So uh, it's a it's an interesting observation. Uh, so using that, the, the specific stiffness that I was showing in the last slide, we can calculate the actual re- reflectivity of these different features. And you can see that compressional reflectivity is really not a good way to discriminate between saturating fluids in this fracture at all. Um, it's unlikely that you would be able to, to see the difference uh, seismically. However, the I think important thing to look at is that the change in reflectivity with stress is really substantial. We go across an order of magnitude, order of magnitude and a half between zero and 17 MPA effective stress and in these fractured reservoirs that are relatively low porosity and you would expect to have less conventional fluid substitution effects. because they also tend to have lower permeability, they tend to have higher pressure fluctuations due to injection activities. And so, uh, this data is suggesting that actually looking at changes in subsurface stress state may be a better seismic target for monitoring fluid movement in this type of reservoir as compared to a more conventional sandstone reservoir. the bottom line story from the shear reflectivity is about the same. Those changes that we are seeing due to interaction between the the rock and the fluid uh, are reflected in small changes in shear reflectivity. So, shear waves may be a better way to to image the fluids. But again, the effect of fluids is much less than the effect of changes in effective stress. So, I, I would argue that changes in stress are actually a, a better target uh, for for monitoring than, than changes in in the reflectivity of, of these features. Um, some other interesting observations, because we have the two um, uh, orthogonal shear waves that we measure, are changes in anisotropy. And you can see that the um, Uh, Shear velocity anisotropy in the whole sample is pretty constant the entire time. And in the fractured sample, there's large changes. And particularly at low effective stress, you get a large reduction in anisotropy and then a relatively constant value about uh, 6% faster in the the fast polarization than in the slow polarization. Um, If you look at the QS anisotropy you actually get the reverse trend where you get large uh, increase in the anisotropy at low effective stresses and then uh, relatively constant anisotropy once you get to 7 or, or or 10 MPa and this is sort of an interesting observation because typically we assume that velocity and Q are positively correlated but here We're not exactly looking at velocity and Q, but their anisotropy is negatively correlated. Um, And so that tells us that they're sort of being sensitive to different aspects of the fracture that are changing as a function of effective stress. So we took a really close look at the microstructures of this fracture. And um, you can see just from some profilometry data that there is a, a natural geometric anisotropy to the surface. There's a sort of lineation, which you can kind of see. I've tried to highlight it by by drawing a, a, a sort of line through it. But if you look at the roughness uh, that's parallel to the lineation versus uh, roughness that's normal to the lineation, you can see that there are differences in those two directions. And we tried to orient our two shear polarizations of measurement roughly with the lineation, although there probably is a plus or minus of 15 degrees or so because of the way that the sample was put together. Um, We also did some measurements using pressure sensitive film, which we put between the two sides of the fracture and then axially loaded in order to look at the uh, change in contact area and the changes in contact stress. Um, We were only able to do this up to about 6 MPA before we start to surpass the limits of the particular pressure sensitive film that we're making, because you get a lot of pressure, um, stress intensification at the the uh, at the contacts, because as you can see, uh, there's a relatively small amount of asperities on this uh, large surface, and if you take a a close look at, at the actual contact area, that's the asperity area divided by the nominal surface area of the fracture. You only have you know, between half a percent and two percent real area of contact on this uh, uh, surface itself uh, across this uh, uh, across this pressure range, um, and you can see that you know you in- also increase the number of asperities in in addition to to increasing the contact area, um, and one of the things that's interesting about this data is that we can then do image analysis and take a look at the specific asperities. And if you take each asperity and do a best fit ellipse to each individual asperity, you can calculate an average asperity eccentricity, uh, which seems to correlate pretty well with the uh, shear velocity and isotropy that we're measuring uh so at low effective stresses you get this reduction in mean asperity eccentricity and that makes some sense because uh you know the the larger area of contact should lead to a a larger stiffness in in that particular direction uh but to, to take a look at the opposite of the asperity is to take a look at the changes in aperture we we took uh, a a subsample of of that same fracture that we imaged ultrasonically and brought it to the ALS uh, put it in our x-ray transparent triax to actually take pictures of the fracture get some 3d data of the fracture as a function of stress um, and so here's a couple slices and you can see that that fracture itself as it closes there's both a you know, reduction in the average aperture of the fracture itself and the growth of the asperities that we saw in the pressure sensitive film data. And you end up with a nice 3D map of the sample. The nice thing about having 3D data like this is that you can do um, both really high quality 3D image analysis. So here we have the maps of the fracture aperture as a function of stress and you can see that at at low stress you have more uniformly open aperture in the sample. Uh, Sorry, these color bars are in microns and uh, as you increase the axial stress across that fracture, you close a lot of the apertures, but the the deeper sort of lineated uh, pathways remain open so you can see that pretty well right here. This this area that's slightly deeper is maintained fairly open, even at the the highest elevated effective stress. Um, And you can also take your 3D geometry and do digital rock physics experiments. So we took this fracture and did a Stokes flow uh, experiment from various different directions to look at the permeability and isotropy as a function of stress. And if you take a look, the digital permeability anisotropy that we measure correlates pretty well with that shear q anisotropy and that when you think about it also maybe makes some sense because uh the attenuation that you see is seems to be more sensitive to the open areas the negative space rather than the Asperities, the positive space, which is where the, the, the energy is being transmitted. And so the uh, general conclusions of this, of this part right here is that imaging changes in pressure may be a better target than changes in fluid composition in these sort of low porosity fractured reservoirs. And uh, changes in shear velocity and isotropy seem to be more sensitive to uh, the real area of contact and the mechanical state of the fracture whereas the changes in attenuation are, are correlated more with changes in fracture aperture and so they contain some information about uh, fracture permeability. Uh, but you know, as, as I was mentioning, a lot of the attenuation and a lot of the behavior of the samples at ultrasonic frequencies is not the same as at seismic frequencies, so we've done some uh, low frequency forced oscillation experiments. We do this, um, with a, uh, uh, an apparatus that we call the, the Torque Q. It's basically a torsional spring that's driven on uh, a free side by a magnetic driver and uh, the other side is is held fixed or stiff and you put a rock sample in the middle of it and you measure the, the twist and torque on the sample, which then you can convert to shear stress and shear strain. And this thing is uh, specifically tuned for doing really low frequency experiments. So, so millihertz to tens of Hertz and, uh, and, and co-seismic strains. So, so 10 to the minus eight up to 10 to the minus four. So teleseismic strains up to somewhat larger strains. Uh, this is what the data looks like. You apply a, a sinusoidal variation. You measure the stress and strain, and then you can plot the stress versus strain and you get these uh, nice looking hysteresis loops. The slope of that ellipse. It gives you the shear modulus of the sample and the area inside the ellipse or the phase lag between the, the two sine waves uh, tells you about the attenuation. And so. For this sample, we're looking at hertz, millihertz uh, frequencies. And so the wavelengths are significantly larger than the size of the apparatus. So there's no scattering taking place. So the attenuation we measure here is is an intrinsic attenuation. Um, And you can look at the frequency dependence of the seismic characteristics. So here is that same dolomite, both an intact sample and a fractured sample. Uh, across a couple orders of magnitude in frequency space and you can see that, you know, the intact sample is much stiffer, probably not surprising to to anyone, and has more or less a a, a constant modulus. But the fractured sample actually uh, displays some kind of interesting behavior. Uh, It's both less stiff, um, but appears to have a a sort of negative dispersion at very low frequencies. This is something that has been um, observed by by some colleagues of mine before, uh, but we don't fully understand it, and I would love to talk to. Folks about this observation, but we've seen it um, a number of times in in different fractured materials, and and it's a it's really it's it's puzzling. Um, But the uh, apparatus also uh, allows us to. uh, take a look at the normal stress dependence. We can apply uh, a coaxial stress um, in, uh, along a sample. So when, when we have a, a sample with a tensile fracture, you can look at the normal stress dependence of both the modulus and attenuation, uh, similar to, to what we did with the ultrasonic experiments. And you can see that um, here we have uh, the normal stress versus shear modulus, normal stress versus attenuation for the uh intact in circles and the fractured sample in triangles and you can see that both the intact sample is stiffer generally and has less stress dependence and the fractured sample is somewhat less stiff and has a much higher stress dependence to the stiffness and you can see the same thing in attenuation Uh, the intact sample has a relatively low and constant attenuation, whereas the fractured sample has a higher uh, and stress-dependent attenuation, particularly at those lower normal stresses. Um, uh, some you know, are roughly below 5 MPA in this data, maybe it kind of looks like below 2 MPA, you get that when you start to see these substantial increases in attenuation in the sample. Uh, you can compare that data uh, to the ultrasonic experiment. So here, effective normal pressure, effective normal stress. The stress states of these samples are not exactly the same because we're applying pressure hydrostatically in the ultrasonic experiments and axially in the uh, uh, lower frequency experiments. But this gives us sort of uh, some way to compare the two datas. Um, so the ultrasonic data is in the uh, the asterisks and the crosses, uh, asterisks being intact sample, the crosses being fractured sample, and the low frequency is uh, in the circles and the triangles, same as in the previous plot, um, and you can see that the the qualitative behavior is the same for at both frequencies. You get um, relatively less uh, stress dependence to both the modulus and the attenuation uh, in the intact samples uh, compared to the uh, fractured samples. Uh, But you also can see that there is some dispersion in the material and the low frequency uh, is for both the intact and the fractured samples, um, somewhat less stiff and somewhat uh, uh, less attenuating that probably has largely to do with the the amount of scattering taking place at the higher frequencies um but there's some interesting uh behavior that seems to be happening specifically looking at the the shear attenuation at, at both frequencies uh, so it, it suggests that that maybe there's there's something interesting happening there so the part two conclusions is that um, the frequency dependence, Uh, The shear modulus at low frequencies in the fractured rock suggests this transitional behavior at around one hertz that leads to a a stiffening at really low frequencies, um, which is something we don't observe in the intact rocks uh, and maybe is related to um, some sort of partial slip happening on the asperities. Or I'd love to talk to some folks about uh, what, what could be going on here. Um, And pressure-induced changes in velocity, particularly attenuation, are more pronounced at at seismic frequencies uh, than at the ultrasonic frequencies. So it gives us a little bit of confidence that these observations are something that that could be done in the field. So now I want to move on to talk about something. I, I think we're all familiar with velocity and attenuation. That's typically what we're measuring when we're looking at seismic data. Uh, This is the USGS. You guys look at a lot of seismic data. Uh, But there is more information that's encoded in uh, the behavior of waves passing through rocks. Um, And, you know, one of the things that happens at low pressures, as I I mentioned a couple times, is you get this really interesting nonlinear behavior. And if you find ways to quantify the nonlinearity, you can recover some really interesting um, information about the state of fractures. So this is our, our normal picture of, of elasticity is a linear thing. You apply a force and you get some sort of displacement. Uh, you know, it's a it's a weight on a spring. But rocks are not weights on springs. Rocks are really complicated, polyphase, porous, fractured materials, and uh, particularly at low effective stress, you have nonlinear elastic behavior and that can be a classical nonlinearity, which is uh, you know w- what we see uh, here these beta and delta terms in this constitutive equation that is just some strain dependence to the elastic behavior but then we also have a lot of hysteretic behaviors and and that's what's what's characterized by this term here um alpha um i think that uh we're all aware that at low pressures we see nonlinear behaviors this is something we've observed many times it's it's what uh folks that work it's the reason that people in rock mechanic labs don't like to take measurements below 10 mpa and the reason that we seed our samples and cycle them a bunch of times is to iron out a lot of those wrinkles but in the earth those wrinkles are there and understanding uh, ways that we can leverage them to recover more inform- uh, more information about the subsurface is 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 it beneficial so linear elasticity is is this is what we're really familiar with modulus is constant with strain and you get straight stress strain curves this is the kind of behavior that we're we're used to nonlinear elasticity has a couple of different shapes to it there's first order classical nonlinearity that means the modulus evolves linearly with strain, and the stress strain loops uh, have have a sort of curve to them with one inflection point. Second order classical nonlinearity, that means that the modulus, you know, softens and stiffens, leads to stress strain loops that have two different uh, cusp points. Um, and then we have hysteretic behavior, which means that the modulus is history dependent and it leads to these open and in the case of realistic rock these cuspy open hysteresis loops and uh this a i, I would argue is the dominant mode of nonlinear behavior in rocks because they're just are they're inherently hysteretic because there are Fluids in them, there are chemical reactions that are taking place, there is plasticity taking place, there's friction that's taking place. These are all hysteretic processes and they're happening all the time. Um, so, uh, when I showed the torker data earlier, I was sort of cheating because I was showing you data from a PMMA sample, which looks like a beautiful ellipse. But when you look at a real rock, and in particular a fractured rock, you get uh, stress strain groups stress strain loops that look like this. Uh, You you actually get a a whole bunch of different qualitative behaviors here. Uh, This is what I call the banana, which is, uh, you know, you get the, this sort of stiffening with strain uh, leading to a a banana shaped open hysteresis loop. Um, And what that manifests as if you look at that in frequency space is harmonics. So, when we put a when we harmonically load our sample, you, you're putting a single frequency through it. In a linear system, you put a single frequency through and you get a single frequency out. In a nonlinear system, you get the generation of different harmonics and the relative uh, heights and which one shows up. Uh, amongst these harmonics is uh, in a lot of cases um, indicative of what kind of nonlinear behavior you're looking at. So. You know, as, um, you know, geophysicists have learned a long time ago, you can condense a lot of really complicated information from the time domain into a really dense information-filled way of looking at behavior by looking at the frequency domain. And so... um, uh, We've been leveraging this fact by running what are um, sometimes called nonlinear wave mixing spectroscopy experiments, where instead of putting a single frequency through the sample, we put two frequencies at the same time, or we have sort of an amplitude modulated signal going through the sample, and we look at the nonlinear wave mixing that takes place in the sample. And uh, by doing this, we get not only the uh, harmonic generations, but we get um, what's called sideband energy or sum and difference frequencies. So you put two frequencies through a sample that's linear, you get two frequencies out. You put two frequencies through a sample that's nonlinear, not only do you get the harmonics, but you also get one frequency minus the other, one frequency plus the other, and one frequency plus harmonics. So you get well, you know these uh, sort of triangle-looking sidebands. And by quantifying the amount of sideband energy that you have, you can actually um, look at the behavior, the constitutive behavior of the sample under that loading. So this is what, what the data from those experiments look like. So here is a sample that is being excited at 1 and 10 hertz. And this is what it looks like in time space. This is what it looks like in stress strain space. So again, you get that same sort of Cuthby loop, but you get these interior loops as well and this is what it looks like when you look at it in frequency space so here is uh, an example of a westerly granite sample with a single tensile fracture through the center of it and this is looking at a sample with uh, seven mpa normal stress um, and versus half an mpa normal stress across the fracture and um these experiments are are performed in a controlled humidity. I'll talk about why that is in a little bit, but uh, um, so you can see probably only very subtle differences just by looking at these plots. But uh, some of the things that I'll call your attention to, in addition to changes in the heights of the amount of sideband energy that you see, um, but you also get these changes in asymmetry to the sidebands, which is indicative of this sort of hysteretic uh, behavior that I was mentioning earlier. And that's one of the reasons that uh, it leads me to believe the majority of the nonlinearity that we're seeing is, is hysteretic in nature. Also, the fact that, you know, at, you see much more of it at, at these lower stresses where you would maybe expect more hysteretic processes to be taking place. Um, so you can look at here these different harmonics, two f, three f, four f, five f, and it's subtle, but you can see that there are large increases actually in the harmonics in the open fracture compared to the closed fracture. Uh, it's even clearer when you just look at the sideband energy. Um, so you get both increases in the harm, uh, increases in the sum and difference frequencies, increases in the asymmetry of the plus and the minus frequencies and you get this general peak broadening of the fundamental frequency which is also something that's indicative of some sort of uh hysteretic process and uh attenuation in general uh so uh there are different ways to quantify this using this frequency spectrum Uh, one way is just by looking at sideband power, so just looking at the amount of power in each of those sidebands compared to the the driving frequency. You can calculate that hysteretic nonlinear parameter. That's the alpha for the constitutive equation I I showed you earlier. And that is a measure of the amount of hysteretic nonlinearity that's taking place. Or you can just look at good old fashioned attenuation in the sample by looking at the, the, the phase lag at the fundamental frequency. Um, And so when you process data and you actually look at the quantification, you can see that all of those qualitative things I was describing are actually borne out really well when you start to quantify things. So the attenuation in the open fracture, no surprise to anyone, is greater than the attenuation in the closed fracture, but it only increases by, you know, 30% the hysteretic nonlinear nonlinearity parameter alpha increases by an order of magnitude the sideband power increases by a factor of 2 so it looks like this hysteretic nonlinearity parameter is a really sensitive indicator of the stress state of the fracture well it gets more complicated because it's uh, it's not just the stress that's taking place uh, that that is is contributing to the uh mechanical behavior of the fracture but it's also the environment that the fracture is in so running that sample this is uh the the same data from that dry open fracture at 10 percent relative humidity compared to an experiment run at 99 relative humidity so there's condensed water at all the asperities as you can see you don't have to squint to see the difference in behavior here. You get huge harmonics. You get harmonics of all the sum and differences. You get uh, dramatic changes in the behavior of the sample. If you look at the sum and difference frequencies, again, you can see the same things we saw in the first, just, you know, jacked up to the nth degree. You get huge increases in the sum and difference frequencies, you get this peak broadening, you get increases in the asymmetry between the positive and the minuses. If you were to just use a conventional method of looking at the state of this fracture, if you look at the attenuation on the fracture, again, the wet fracture is obviously has more attenuation, but again, only an increase of 20, 30%, whereas the hysteretic non parameter goes up by two orders of magnitude, and the sideband power goes up by two orders of magnitude. Um, This so you know these measurements were made at one hertz. But you can look at this behavior over a wide range of frequencies, so I did um, some similar measurements uh, of a tensely fractured westerly granite from one millihertz all the way up to to 300 hertz uh, to take a look at this behavior. Uh, across the sort of seismic frequency band and again you can see that there's a dramatic effect of stress on the behavior. You get the generation of these sum and difference frequencies, you get peak broadening, you get increased asymmetry. This is so at these elevated frequencies at, at 100 hertz and it's so at tens of millihertz. You can see that at uh, the closed fracture, 10 MPa normal stress shows very little of this sort of sum and difference frequencies, whereas at 0.3 MPa, you get dramatic nonlinear effects. And you can actually see that the this nonlinear effect is greater at lower frequencies. So here we have frequency versus sideband power. That's one of those metrics that I was looking at before. Uh, an aluminum sample is, is in black. It's, it's pretty linear. It doesn't show any of this nonlinear behavior across the entire frequency band. The closed fracture, you start to see some of the, you, you do have nonlinear behavior, but it, it's, it's relatively low, And you but you do start to see it at the very lowest frequencies at around 10 millihertz. Uh as you reduce the normal fre- normal stress across the fracture, you start to see that there's more nonlinear behavior at slightly elevated frequencies. But the thing that is, is pretty clear is that these really low frequencies, and you know, not, not crazy low from a seismic perspective, but very low from a, a laboratory perspective, are actually more sensitive to this nonlinear effect than the, the higher frequencies are. And not only that, but the normal stress sensitivity to nonlinearity is also greater at these lower frequencies. Um, There's a couple of reasons why this might be the case. The the mechanisms of nonlinearity are all these interesting uh, sort of uh, uh, hysteretic processes that are taking place in time. So the lower frequencies maybe is just, you know, allowing more of them to to take place, but we can talk about that as well. I think I'm like have eaten up all of our question time with too much data, but I just uh, I'll leave you with this. This is something that has been uh, investigated in the uh, non-destructive materials testing literature for a couple decades now. Here we have damage index versus resonance frequency, which is, roughly proportional to modulus damping, which is roughly related to uh, attenuation. Uh, this is, I believe, in like a car part or something like that. And you get, you know, relative changes in the modulus and attenuation in the sample. You get maybe up to a factor of 10, very close to failure. But if you look at the nonlinearity of the sample, you get... A change of a factor of thousand. So this non-linearity, it can be a very sensitive way to remotely monitor uh, the the state of a damaged material. Um, and this is, in fact, something that is, uh, ha- has been taking place. There's this guy, Andrew DeLori at Los Alamos. I think he used to be a USGS guy. He's been using Teleseismic data to quantify the azimuthal dependence of nonlinearity, and uses this as a way to map the stress orientation in areas without boreholes to a lot of success. Um, so, uh, some conclusions here: fractured rocks at low effective stress have really significant nonlinear behavior. This behavior is modulated by water. Um, and it's particularly sensitive to stress state at seismic frequencies and below Um, i had a lot of help performing all of these experiments and just a a quick plug for some of those fun capabilities that nick mentioned at the beginning of this Uh, we do a lot of x-ray science at berkeley lab we're developing a cryogenic test cell for doing multi-physics experiments Uh, with imaging on the microtomography beamline. It's made for planetary applications, but could be really cool for cryosphere stuff as well. And we also have a new nanotomography beamline and have been building a mechanical testing cell for that as well. If people are interested in some some really, really high resolution imaging of tiny samples, please talk to me about that as well. So uh, in the last four minutes, I guess, I'd be happy to take questions. All right, everybody, do we have any questions for Harry? Uh, Nick?
1: Hi, Harry. Great talk. Really, I'm very, very interested in... uh, basically this this topic of uh, hysteresis and um, non, non-linearities, especially at low effective stress. And it, it's the low effective stress, that's the part t- to me that's really interesting, not, not because of the near surface environment where the effective stresses are low, but also in the deeper parts of the crust where, um, where some people think the effective stresses are vanishing, you know, in the tremor zone, for example. So there, there are similar kinds of unusual things going on there. The frequency content seems to be quite a bit different um, from so-called seismic events. Have you have you thought anything about this? I know this is a little bit out of your comfort zone, but it, you know, this is something that can be explored. Um, as you point out, using just Different frequencies of waves to probe the response of the material. So, that's that's my first question, which is, I, I'll retract it if you don't want to answer it.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean it definitely is is something that uh, I have thought quite a bit about. You know, I I'm mostly these days I'm working in the near surface, and there are, you know. Uh, more easier ways to to probe these kind of things you know you can you can do complicated seismic experiments but there are a lot of really interesting uh teleseismic methods for looking at deeper processes as well and in particular the the you know that that quick slide that i i breeze through at the end uh with the guy who has been quantifying nonlinearity using teleseismic waves uses tidal stress variations as the low-frequency wave. And um, there are all sorts of quasi-harmonic natural processes that can be used as a way to probe these nonlinear processes. And, you know, in particular, you know, in, in tremor zones and things like that, it it has already been noted that you can have, uh, associations of uh, slip or seismic events that are associated with tidal loading or even atmospheric loading, all sorts of little perturbations and things like that. Um, so, I, I think there are a lot of options of ways to, to, to leverage natural processes to do this kind of analysis.
1: Great, thank you. So, we've got a question from Ruth in the chat. Um, hi, Harry. Great talk. I'm wondering about computational models of the full earthquake cycle. The results in theory you're showing indicate that the assumptions of elastic behavior are not okay for these models.
0: Well, the, uh, the assumption of elastic, be- well, I mean, so it's a, I'm not sure. So non-linear, the the point of the last part of the talk is that elasticity doesn't have to be linear. But I think what you're asking about is non-linear constitutive behavior, which I agree almost certainly is not uh, the case, particularly in the region of the seismic cycle really close to rupture. And I think that people have observed this anyway, that there you get large changes in behavior before and after events that lead to you know that imply that there are nonlinear processes that are that are at play. And in fact, um uh this is something that good old Andrew Delorie, who I'm plugging a lot right now, but I, 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 he's been doing a lot of really cool work in this area. Um, he has actually looked at uh, that that behavior uh, as part of Parkfield sequences, and does a r- great job at quantifying large increases in nonlinearity prior to events. Uh, so, yeah, I think that you know, I mean, the thing about models is you just need them to be useful. You don't need them to be completely accurate, right? So um, it depends what you want to use the model for. All right,
1: are there any more questions? Nick, is your hand just up or? Yeah, I put up my hand again, sorry. Um, so the other th- question I wanted to ask, which is not related to tremor, um, is y- you showed a lot of similarity between the shear stress and normal stress response and the, that but the unconfined experiments where you went to the, to the really low frequencies were done with a torquing device. You could, could you do those with, with normal loading since the uh, the similarity it's also a hell of a lot easier to do <laughs> because um, you didn't have to hold onto the sample. So in such a crazy way. So could you speak yes. to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and uh, I mean, you, you guys have the rigs to do it more more than I do. Th- this sort of experiment would be very straightforward to run in a conventional triax. Um, The, you know, one of the things, you know, you just need to be really careful to to calibrate your sensors because you can get all sorts of nonlinearities from like, you know, your LVDT rubbing or or this or that. But if you do it, there's no reason you couldn't do a harmonic loading experiment in a conventional triax. And it's something I'm definitely interested in doing and in particular as pertains to uh geothermal conditions, I think looking at these effects as a function of temperature is something that hasn't large. Actually, a lot of the work that's been done in this area has been you know done in unjacketed samples. It's a lot of resonance measurements, um, looking at near surface environments, but there's a lot of work that can be that can, and I think should be done at those elevated temperatures and pressures.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I've been thinking about, which I wish I was there, I could, we could talk in more detail is that, you know, the normal, the normal loading tells you a lot about aperture as well. So it's potentially possible that you could use ultrasonics to measure aperture in addition to stress, especially since, you know, these resonances are all related to the the opening, and it's it's easy to do that with, you know, if you just had an axial sensor or something like that, you, you know, just sending P waves across a fracture, no shear. And to, and, and I agree, it, doing it at temperature is the way to go. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is, have you thought about um, more, I guess, I would call them analog fractures, so something in which you know a lot more about the contact um, geometry and things like that. So maybe things that are being done with, um, you know, with spheres or, or, or contacts, which you know the details, and you also know the stress dependence of in, in a pretty simple way to sort of get a feel for or what are really are the nonlinear processes that are controlling the, the response you're seeing.
0: Yeah, yeah. In fact, in, in the sort of nonlinear elasticity community, it's more acousticians and physicists than earth scientists because that's exactly what they're interested in. You know, well described systems, uh, things that you can model analytically. Um, There has been quite a bit of work done there, but uh, you know, a lot of, as I alluded to at the end of the talk, a lot of the nonlinear behavior seems to be modulated by humidity. Uh, And even if you have like two really nicely behaved glass spheres, that are easy to model, the behavior of the water that's adsorbed, condensed, moving around at the contact isn't. And that seems to be related to a lot of this. So um, I I, I can point you to some really interesting papers where they do exactly what you're talking about, um, but the answers aren't as nice as you'd think.
1: Yeah, so if you go back to the early studies of, of, I don't know, Tabor, Kendall and Tabor, they they showed that when you just have simple Hertzian contacts, if you put if you put a fluid about the contact, it changes the it it changes the attenuation of the contact. It you know, it makes the quality much better. So wetted contacts are behave entirely different than than just dry. And you know, it's hard to get a handle on that, but if you're doing it completely saturated, then you don't have to think about those effects. Then you have to worry about issues with training of the fluid and stuff like that on the, the frequency yeah. range. So Anyway, we, nice. we, we should talk at great length over many beers probably at some point. And I'm sorry I'm missing you. I'll, I'll shut up now.
0: Thanks, Nick. All right, so I think if there are no more
1: questions, we can stop recording. And then people who just want to stay
0: on and chat can stay on.